So our study in the Minor Prophets leads us this morning to Micah. And Micah leads me out of my depths. <laughs> Micah, if he were a, a pastor, we might say, is a book that contains a number of sermons. Since he's a prophet, we call them oracles, but most people, most of us don't know what an oracle is. But just think of it essentially as it's a prophecy. It's a, it's a prophetic message that's meant to bring to light or to make clear in people's minds what's real. And it's basically then a series of oracles about systemic injustice. And of course, you know, if we, this is one of the places where I feel out of my depth. I mean, I think probably if we're honest, most of us would, that there are huge systemic injustices in the world today. The vast majority of them fueled by some sort of sin or rebellion against God. And so if you were just to get out your phone right now and just Google, you know, the world's biggest problems, and you'd find several articles and you'd find things like this. There's all the things we know about, racial tension, injustice in courts, schools, workplaces. These places aren't really fair all the time. Climate change, issues of clean water, immigration, war, refugees, political and social instability, unemployment, underemployment, severe and growing income disparity, failure of global governments to govern well and to actually serve their constituents. And you just go on and on. And if you're being even slightly emotionally and intellectually honest, you just go, this is a bit over my head. Like this, I mean, you can hardly even take it all in. I mean, there is so much complexity there. Friday, I was uh, flying to uh, Kansas City for some bishopy work I had to do, and sitting next to me was a, um, a young executive. I couldn't believe she was an executive, she, but she was so young and just the way she was dressed, but a young executive for Amazon. And her role in the corporation was she supervised all the like safety issues in all their distribution centers. So she just kind of was an OSHA kind of interface. And, and she had her phone out and she said, oh yeah, the New York Times just trashed us saying that everybody who works for Amazon leaves crying every day. And it's just right in front of your face. And of course she's saying, oh, you know, that's not true. But who knows? Do you see what I mean? Us sitting here today, who, who's right? The New York Times, and that's not a joke, the New York Times or... <laughs> You know, this girl who's in the plants all the time. Are you feeling me here? I mean, this, uh, and then Saturday when I was in Kansas City, I happened to talk to somebody who, I can't remember now if he worked for Under Armour or had some sort of other knowledge, like maybe he was a vendor for Under Armour or something. And it was just telling me the story, had no idea I was teaching on Micah and told me this story, how Under Armour came under, like uh, Adidas and Puma and Nike and lots of people have, these athletic companies, but for some reason Under Armour came under intense pressure about paying low wages in wherever, I can't remember. And so this corporation, you know, this terrible, horrible corporation, you know, the way some of us think these days, said, okay, they, you know, some people would say they caved into the pressure and um, shut down the plants or something, or, or I don't know what exactly they did. And there was like rioting because to those people, they were the best jobs they'd ever had and the highest wages they'd ever made. All I'm saying by this is if we're honest, this is highly nuanced, highly complex, 
highly difficult stuff when you start to talk about systemic injustices. Now, obviously, it's rooted in personal individual sin, but the way it gets expressed is actually really difficult. So Micah's crying out against such systemic injustices and crying out especially against greedy economic practices that exploited the poor. And essentially, if we were to take the complex stuff we just read, we could say basically he's doing three things. That he is exposing abuse of position. And that's simply to say that the ruling elites of the day, you know, judges or just anybody who was in a position of authority in the community was rigging the system for their gain. And so Mike is crying out against this. He's crying out against abuses, secondly, of proclamation. And that is to say that the prophets of Micah's day, his contemporaries, I mean, this is shocking, but true. If you paid them enough money, they would basically tell you a good fortune, like a fortune teller. But if you didn't, you know, sort of like, you know, tipping a maitre d', you know, enough to get a good table. If you didn't tip them enough, then all you got was anger and verbal abuse. But if you paid the prophets enough, then they would, you know, say something good about your life. And then lastly, he's basically uncovering abuse of privilege. And that is to say, virtually all the leaders in Israel and even the priests were taking bribes to do or say whatever it is that the people wanted them to do or say. And Micah basically stands up and shouts, at some point, everyone must answer to God for this. And of course, the huge irony in is that these, is that these were the very covenant people of God charged by God with really high ideals. I mean, priests and judges and people in authority in Israel were supposed to be leading loving, serving kinds of lives that had in mind God's plan and God's people such that they would organize their hearts and minds around facilitating that. Rather sort of, on the one hand, casting aside God, or if you look at your, your Micah reading, I forget which verse it is now, they're living with this assumption that, well, we're Israel and we're living in Jerusalem or Samaria, and so, you know, nothing bad is gonna happen to us. So sort of giving lip service to God, enforcing all these systemic injustices for their gain while thinking that, oh, nothing bad's gonna happen. And this is what Micah stands up and shouts about. He's essentially saying something like this, you leaders are precisely the ones who were supposed to have a worldview marked by stewardship, where you knew that everything belonged to God, that everything in the human race gets zipped up in God's divine plan, and that we're stewards within that who are supposed to be seeking the good of others. But what, again, what Micah's oracle is about is that instead they're using unfair legal and business structures to essentially create monopolies. And so then Micah uses this, you know, incredible language of they've become brutal butchers who care only for themselves or their political or economic interests. And then he uses these really powerful analogies of like you're skinning people alive and, can skinning people alive and cannibalizing them. The people you're supposed to be serving, you're just using for yourself. Well, our, our reading in Mark is equally dramatic. Now, you know, when we read these stories uh, in the Gospels, um, they function on several levels. So like, you know, someone might ask, um, 
uh, kind of like when we were dealing with Jonah, you know, like, was there really a well? You know, s- someone might ask here, were there really these pigs and did the demons really go in them and did they really run into the sea? So, you know, we could talk about it on that level and let's assume that's true, that this actually happened. That there was a man who was brutally demonized against God's will for human flourishing. This man was brutally demonized and Jesus drives the demons out. So let's just assume that's all true. But there remains a question. Why is Mark telling that story? Of all the stories Mark can tell about Jesus, why is he telling that story? Why is he telling it here? In other words, how does it fit in his overall gospel tract? Mark's writing a gospel tract. He's trying to get people to understand what God's doing in Jesus and to get people to come and follow Jesus. So why is Mark telling this story? And and the most common way to understand Mark is that Mark is all about power encounters of Jesus overthrowing the disordered powers of his day. And so this story in Mark's gospel functions very much like what Mike is doing. I mean, if, if at one point Jesus actually explained himself, and this will help you see why we started the service the way we did this morning. At one point in Luke's gospel, I think Luke uh, 9, um, Jesus, or 11, I can't remember, is explaining himself, and he says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, and, and the illusion here is something like, you know how God said, let there be light, and there was light? Well, if I even can drive out legions of demons just with the finger of God, then anybody remember what comes next? Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The beginning of the rule and reign of God, where God begins to set the world to rights, and the systemic infestation of a man, that even those sort of systemic things can't stand. But, you know, if you, if you look at your passage, remember the people didn't react very well to this. They kind of feared it and, and didn't like it. And so it raises the question, well, who wouldn't really like this? Well, other than the obvious strangeness, right? I mean, if we, I mean, let's give these people a break. If we saw it, we'd probably be a little wigged out too, right? So other than the strainness, strangeness, but I don't think that's the level on which Mark's telling this story. Those who wouldn't like it are those who are committed to the arrangement of the powers as they presently are. If the powers as they presently are are facilitating something you like, you're not going to like it when somebody comes and upsets that system of power. And that's essentially what's going on here. So the people who don't like it are the people who are committed to Caesar, who are committed to the worldly or current religious powers. And again, the people of Israel would have all understood this, that this stood in stark contrast against what God's leaders were called to be. When you think of Israel first being formed out of the Exodus and, and you know, becoming a people and, and crossing the river and, and God begins to shape them, Exodus tells us exactly what these leaders were supposed to be like. Exodus 18 tells us they were to be God-fearing and trustworthy and teaching the way of God and rendering just decisions within the community. That was their essential job description, render just decisions within the community. And by the time you get to Micah, and it's become so systemically unjust, this is what he's railing against. But like I said when I started, I mean, I can't be the only one in the room for whom this leaves me feeling a little overwhelmed. Like, 
Well, how do we even begin? What do we do? I mean, the world's problems do seem so huge and complex and convoluted. I think every one of us would say, I feel like I lack power, talent. Where do you get the talent to solve these problems? And for the vast majority of us, we lack the opportunity. We're not in places where we're near the buttons or levers, level, levers of systemic global injustice. So I, I can't just leave you hanging here. So um, let me give you some ideas that are on offer quickly and then suggest a way forward, I think, that could work for our own discipleship. There are some current trends in thought about this. Um, one of them comes from a man named James Davidson Hunter, who's a professor at the University of Virginia. Three or four years ago, I forget now, wrote a book called To Change the World. And in there, what Hunter does is he basically critiques um, the way that the church has thought about engaging culture and sort of fixing things. And so he critiques the changing of culture on the terms of, well, if we can just change people's ideas, change their hearts and minds one person at a time, that, you know, that would do it. And he basically critiques it on a couple of levels, but one of them is that that has often created in the church the desire to be relevant to the world, which then comes at a cost of abandoning our distinctiveness. He critiques it on the level of changing culture through amassing and wielding political power, saying rightly, in my view, that when a project starts with amassing power, they usually worsen the very problems they're trying to solve, right? So I'm willing to say and do anything to get this job, a representative or a congressman or whatever, right? I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do and say anything to get that job because when I've amassed that power, then I'll do good. And we all know now that by the time you get there on that road, you're co-opted by the powers. And so even very sincere people end up not being able to do the good they wanted to do. So Hunter's suggestion is essentially this. Faithful presence within the spheres of human institutions that we already find ourselves in. And to just serve faithfully in our relationships and tasks and spheres of social influence. And he says, I think this is really helpful, at least for my imagination. He writes, if there's a possibility for human flourishing in our world, it does not begin when we win the culture wars, but when God's word of love becomes flesh in us and then reaching into every sphere of social life. So that's one offer out there from Hunter. Just faithful presence where you find yourself. Edwin Friedman, who wrote a book called A Failure of Nerve, which is really a book on leadership, but I think has um, social implications. Friedman would say something like this, that the church needs to fully differentiate as followers of Jesus, but somehow stay connected to the broken systemic injustices of our lives and stay there as a non-anxious presence. Now, I, we could talk about this for a whole day. But that's really important because most of our culture, as soon as we begin to engage in these things, they find us to be anxious, defensive people. This is what every study shows. And so we have to find a way to neither separate from culture because it's bad or sort of fight with culture from an internal place of anxious defensiveness or find a way to stay connected as fully differentiating as the people of God while staying connected to culture, but as a non-anxious, non-defensive presence. 
You know, I just thought of one I didn't write down. <laughs> My friend uh, Scott McKnight, who along with uh, Dennis is canon theologian to me, um, Scott's a professor in the Midwest and um, uh, um, has written a lot and that sort of thing. And I don't remember his most recent book. I don't even know if it's published yet, where he's basically trying to help us think through how we often use culture in this sort of benign, neutral sense and how as a church we're losing content, contact of all the biblical references to the world. And that sometimes culture is the world. It's, it's not this sort of benign, neutral thing, and we can't just assume some sort of engagement with the culture's artifacts and the culture systems and the things that the culture produces. And so, so when um, Mumford and Sons come out, so then the church starts copying that kind of music. Right, are you feeling me here or whatever? So the culture creates an artifact, a piece of music, a movie or something, and so then the church kind of runs in that direction thinking that, well, this then makes us relevant. And I'm, I'm not completely putting that down, but I'm saying I think Scott's onto something. That we have to keep in mind that the scriptures also mean something when they talk about the world and what God is doing in the world and how the church is supposed to engage with, quote, the world, not just culture as we think of it in this um, the sense of what this culture produces. And then thirdly, um, this became, I mean, this, this, I can't remember the guy's name now who's been writing about this for a while, um, but he's, he, he's been writing about this for two or three years, but after the Supreme Court decision came down about gay marriage, this kind of went viral everywhere amongst at least a certain group of people of what's known as the Benedict Option. And this simply is, of course, is a reference um, to St. Benedict, who, when everything was going wrong in the Roman Empire and everything was falling into chaos, Benedict goes into the woods to pray. He founds a community that becomes a Benedictine order. And over the next centuries of barbarian darkness, these men in prayer keep the faith alive throughout Europe, which then lays the groundwork for the rebirth later of Christian society in the West. And essentially what people are doing who are trying to think through this sort of Benedictine option is they're wondering, well, maybe what we need to do in this time of crazy global social injustice is to just form local forms of Christian community, which then can um, contain a kind of civility and intellectual and moral life that can be sustained through these new dark ages. So do you see the analogy? We're now living in a new sort of dark ages. And maybe one option we have is like Benedict to just kind of form little communities of faith that keep the faith alive and preserve a robustly Christian subculture with an increasingly hostile common culture. And then lastly, there's an author called James K. Smith, who a number of years ago wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom. And in this book, I think Smith, uh, Jamie Smith, helps us consider the role of disordered desires in systemic injustice. Like, what underlied that? You're a judge or a magistrate or a mayor in the 8th century BC, and you're skinning the people alive, metaphorically, crushing their bones, metaphorically, using them to get what you want. Where does that come from? Disordered desire. 
Where me being able to have a conjoining piece of land, like if I can get your piece of land, then I can join it with mine and I can expand my footprint. And that desire is so important to me that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get that. And what I think Jamie Smith has been contributing for four or five years here that is so important, especially to Christian spiritual formation, to Christian discipleship, is this, that humans are not primarily, or for the most part, thinkers or even believers. That instead, human persons are fundamentally lovers. And these are my words, I think, not his. Thus, it's often the case that learning a Christian perspective or a Christian worldview, it doesn't actually touch my desires. So you can read Augustine, or you can read Chuck Colson, or somebody, you know, from sort of the 90s, and that sort of, just that idea that if, well, if we can just give people a Christian worldview, that will then begin to shape the systemic injustices, and, you know, their project was in America. But it didn't. It didn't even come close. Because one can intellectually grasp a Christian worldview, but it leaves your actual desires completely untouched. What you really love, what you really worship, is what Jamie would want to say. So I might be able to, I might be able to learn to think about the world from a Christian perspective, but at the end of the day, Jamie writes, I love not the kingdom of God, but rather the kingdom of the cultural market and its ability to fulfill my truest desires. Now that's worth a weekend retreat. We could just sit with that sentence for a weekend. I have a Christian worldview Some of you come out of very Bible churches, and you might even be able to say you have a Bible worldview. But worldview can leave our actual desires completely or largely untouched. And thus we continue to live out of that which we really love. And oftentimes, it's the cultural market. Well, why? Because it has the ability to fill my truest desires. So this, I think, is a very helpful discipleship thought because it leads to the question, um, what if discipleship to Jesus, you know, that which would really shape an identity around Jesus, isn't first and foremost about what we know? Now, I say that as a professor in a room full of, there's got to be 10 professors sitting here. I love knowledge. I have the highest professional degree you can get. I teach at seminaries and universities. I'm not down on knowledge. I'm simply saying knowledge isn't the end all and be all. But what if, what if we ask this question? What if discipleship isn't first and foremost about what we know, but about what we love, about what we worship? You know, about that which has preeminence in our lives. What if that's sort of first order discipleship and then knowledge gives us what we need to pursue a first love. Are you feeling me here? I think this is really important. And it's important not just for our own personal discipleship, but I'm, I'm convinced that, that Smith has something to offer here, even in terms of systemic injustices, that at the root of all that is disordered desire. So like I said, I know this gets overwhelming, and so I can't just overwhelm you and say, amen. Um, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. So, we, so what, what are we going to do with this? I mean, I have to kind of just suggest a way forward. 
And for me, a way forward um, has its kind of imaginative root in Romans 12, 1 and 2, as Peterson gets it in the message. So here's what I want you to do. Take your everyday ordinary life, your life, your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God is an offering. And then I would add here, working against systemic injustice in the way that you can. So if one of you gets hired by the State Department, you're going to be able to do a bit more than, you know, somebody who's teaching kindergarten. But that lady who, or guy who's teaching kindergarten has things they can do. Are you tracking with me here? So within your life as you presently know it, how can you become the cooperative friend of Jesus? Working with his kingdom rather than against it for the fulfilling of our own desires. You know, and there's that passage in John where um, Jesus says to his first followers, I'm no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master's thinking and planning. No, I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything I've heard from my father and all that we're doing together. So what if you took your life and you baptized it in that reality, right? Follow this. Jesus comes from the Trinitarian reality, the eternal Trinity of God. He comes incarnate into human life. And then he says of himself, what you see happening here comes out of father and son intimacies. I only say the things I hear my father saying. I only do the things I hear him saying. And now listen, Jesus says, I'm not calling you servants. Because servants don't understand that dynamic. No, I'm calling you friends because I'm letting you in on everything dad and I are up to. And I'm inviting you in your life as you presently know it to become my cooperative friend and to as an ambassador of the kingdom of God, right? The, 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 the power elites of Micah's time were not ambassadors of the kingdom. They were ambassadors of their own disordered desires and willing to do anything to get it. But Jesus says, no, I am inviting you to be my cooperative friend, to, to seek to live a constant life of creative goodness for human flourishing wherever your sphere of influence is. That fundamental to Christian life is an otherliness, that we, we live for the sake of others. Galatians 5 says, Christ has set us free to live a free life. Use your freedom, Paul says, to serve one another in love. Or in Colossians 4, Similarly, he says, use your heads as you live and work amongst outsiders, you know, this everyday ordinary life. Don't miss a trick. Make the most of every opportunity. And then now lastly, to everybody who maybe lacks a robust imagination for the purpose of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, um, here's a good place to understand why we all need an honest engagement with the Spirit. Good luck with this without it right? Because as soon as you, it, you'll know that you are actually dealing with a principality of power, a disordered system, a disordered set of desires, when you get major pushback. That's what happened to Jesus. Or remember in Acts, when Paul drives a demon out of that lady who was a fortune teller, everybody goes crazy. Why? Because they can't see her good. They can't see the finger of God at their mit, in their midst. All they can see is a loss of income. So if you step in and say, hey, no, 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 this lady's important, and she was demonized, and this is good. When you start getting that pushback, 
then you will know that you've stepped on a landmine of systemic injustice. And in that moment, you will be really grateful to know that you are companioned along the way by God the Holy Spirit, who can give you gifts of wisdom and discernment and knowledge and strengthen your inner being, help you to see things from God's angle. That's called the gift of prophecy. Maybe give you the gift of healing, of administration. Now, right, you start thinking of all those gifts and suddenly they make sense in a life that's being lived for others. So that's, what I, that's my basic suggestion. Most of you are not going to work in the State Department, and most of you are not going to work for some you know, global corporation. I mean, some will, but most of us are just going to live our lives. How can we live them in faithfulness to what Mike is crying out against? Take your everyday ordinary life. You're eating, sleeping, getting up, going to work life, and place it before God as an offering. Do so with this imagination. I'm the cooperative friend of Jesus, seeking to live a constant life of creative goodness for the sake of others through the power of the Holy Spirit. That'll get you through your day. And as your days change and, and God might place you in places where you can do more, you can take that same imagination with you. So let's bow our heads here for a bit of quiet. And let's see if we can ask the Spirit to allow the words of Micah to kind of break us out of any kind of apathy we might have about extending justice and kindness to others. Again, just noticing never guilt. This is a no guilt zone, no guilt, no shame. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but just have the courage to notice. Any kind of apathy you might have, maybe a place where you've given up because it does seem too complex and too hard. And just begin to ask yourself, where do you notice injustice in your spheres of influence? Who are the lowly in your life? And how might God be calling you to be his cooperative friend in those spaces and places?